Captive of the Centurianus, a novel of primitive future worlds, by Paul Anderson. The hero is the child of his times, in that his milieu furnishes him with motives and means, and yet the hero seizes the time and shapes it as he will, and he remains an enigma to his contemporaries and to the future. Nowhere is this better illustrated than in the strange story of the three whose discoveries and achievements determined the whole course of history. The driving idealism and bold military genius of Dian Kolas, the mighty wisdom profound and benign of Rushkidin, above all perhaps the transcendent clarity of mind and inspired leadership of Ballantyne. These moulded our century and all centuries to come, and yet we will never understand them. They are too far beyond us, and their essential selves must be forever mystery. Balabai Wesmielsen, History of the Twenty-Third Century, Volume One Chapter One The tender loomed above the crowd of passengers and leave-takers, a great shining bullet caught in floodlights against the dark, and Ray Ballantyne quickened his steps. By heaven he'd made it. The flight from San Francisco to Quito, the nail-biting dawdle as he waited for the airbus, then the flight out to Ecuador spaceport, the last walk through the vast, echoing hollowness of the terminal, out onto the field, and there it was, there the little darling lay, waiting to carry him from earth up to the Jovian queen in safety. He kissed his fingers at the tender and shoved rudely through the swarm of people and Martians. He'd already missed the first trip up to the liner, and the thought of waiting for the third was beyond endurance. Hey, chum! As the heavy hand fell on his arm, Ballantine whirled, his heart slamming against his teeth and his spine dropping out. The thick-set man compared his thin, sharp features with the photograph in the other paw, nodded and said, All right, Ballantine, come along. Say lama gathir, gibbered the engineer. No hablo English. I said come along, said the detective wearily. I thought you'd try to leave Earth, this way. Ballantine's free hand reached up and crammed the fellow's hat down over his eyes. Wrenching loose, he turned and ran for the gangway, upsetting a corpulent Latin woman en route, and pursued by a volley of imprecations. He shoved aside the passenger before him and ran into the solid wall of an impassive Jovian ship's officer. The Jovian, a tall, muscular blonde in a dazzling crispness of white uniform, looked at him with the thinly-veiled contempt of a proper confed for the lesser breeds of humanity. Ticket and passport, please, he said stonily. Ballantyne shoved them at him, glancing shakily back to the detective who had become entangled with the indignant woman and was being slapped with a handbag and volubly cursed. With maddening deliberation, the Jovian scanned the engineer's papers, compared them with a the list in his hand, and waved him on. The detective caromed against the same immovable barrier. Let me by, he gasped. Your ticket and passport, please, said the Jovian. That man is under arrest, let me by. Your ticket and passport, please. I tell you I'm an officer of the law and I've a warrant for that man, let me by. Proper authorization may be obtained at the main office, said the Jovian coldly. The detective tried to rush, encountered a bit of expert judo and tumbled back into the crowd. Every able-bodied Jovian was a well-trained military reservist. Proper authorization may be obtained at the main office, repeated the immovable barrier. To the next man, your ticket and passport, please. Ray Ballantyne dashed the sweat of his brow and permitted himself a nasty chuckle. By the time the hapless detective had gone through all that red tape, the tender would be well on its way. 
Before one of his country's secret police, the Jovian would have quailed and said nothing. But this was Earth, and the Confeds loved to bait terrestrials, and there was no better way than by demanding the endless papers which their file-clerk mentalities had devised. The engineer went on into the tender, found a seat, and strapped himself in. He was clear. Before heaven, he was away. Even the long Vanbrugh arm did not reach to Jupiter. Ballantyne's alleged crimes weren't enough for the Earth government to ask his extradition. He could stay on Ganymede till the whole business had blown over, and then, well. He sighed, relaxing, a medium-sized young man, slender and wiry, with close-cropped yellow hair, and features a little too sharp to be handsome. His thin, deft fingers rearranged his overly colourful tie, and straightened his sports jacket. Always wanted to see the Jovian system anyway, he rationalised. The tender's airlock sighed shut, and a stewardess went down the aisle handing out anti-acceleration pills. She had the full-bodied, pure-blooded good looks of the ideal Jovian, together with their frankly repellent air of hard, purposeful efficiency. The rockets began to throb, warming up, and the siren hooted. Ballantyne turned to the man beside him, obsessed with the idiotic desire for conversation found in all recent escapees from the law or the dentist. "'Going home, I see,' he remarked. The man was a tall specimen in the grey Jovian army uniform, with colonel's planets on his shoulders and a chestful of ribbons and medals. About forty, closely shaven head, iron jaw, ramrod spine. He fixed the earthling with a chill, pale eye and said, "'And you, I see, are leaving home.' Two scintillating deductions. Um, oh, well. Ballantyne looked away, his ears ablaze. The Jovian clutched his heavy portfolio tighter to his side. The tender shook itself, howled, and jumped into the sky. Ballantyne leaned back in the cushioned seat, staring out the port at the fire-starred unfolding of space. The Jovian colonel sat rigid as before, not deigning to yield to the pressure. They came up to the Jovian Queen, where the great liner held her orbit about Earth, and Ballantyne glimpsed her long metal shape, blinding in the raw sunlight as the tender swung in for contact. When the airlocks joined, there was a steady one gravity as the spaceship rotated on her axis. Whatever you could say against the Jovians, and that was quite a bit, they did maintain the best transport in the solar system. Earth's heavy passenger and freight haulers were in tight financial straits, competing with the state-subsidized lines of Jupiter. An expressionless uniformed steward took charge of the passengers as they entered the ship, herding them to their respective destinations. Ballantyne lugged his valise toward third-class section. He'd have to share his cabin with two others. How had the mighty fallen? Thinking over the decline and fall of the Ballantyne pocketbook, he sighed and the suitcase seemed to drag at him. It hit Ganymede pretty broke, unless... He opened his assigned door. Put me down! Ballantyne dropped his suitcase and his jaw. Within the narrow cabin, a Martian was struggling in the clutch of a six-foot armored woman. Put me down! he spluttered. He coiled his limbs snake-like around the woman's brawny arms, and a Martian's four thick, rubbery walking tentacles have formidable strength. She didn't seem to notice. She laughed and shook him a bit. I beg your pardon? gasped Ballantyne, backing away. You are forgiven, said the woman. Her voice was a husky contralto, burdened with a rippling, slurring accent he couldn't place. He shot out one Martian-encumbered arm, grabbed him by the coat and hauled him inside. You be the urge, my friend. Is it not justice that I have the lower berth? 
It is nothing of the sort, screamed the Martian, fixing Ballantyne with round, bulging, and indignant yellow eyes. My position, my eminence, clearly entitle me to every consideration, and tentis a hulking monster. The earthling let his gaze travel up and down the woman's smooth-muscled form, and said in an awed whisper, I think you'd better accept the lady's generous offer, but uh, you seem to have the wrong cabin. Are you Ray Ballantyne of Earth? asked the woman. He pleaded guilty. Then you belong with us. I have littered the passenger lists. You may have the cart. Thanks, shivered Ballantyne, sitting down on it. The Martian seemed to give the fight up as a bad job, and allowed himself to be placed on the upper bunk. To think of it, he squeaked, that I, the great old skin of a musket turtle, should be manhandled by a savage who does not know a logarithm from an exponent. Rushkadam. Ballantyne knew the name of the Martian mathematician, the latter-day Gauss or Einstein, and stared as if this was the first Martian he had seen in his life. Rushkadam looked like any other of his race, at least to the inexperienced eye. A great grey-skinned cupula of a body balanced four feet high on the walking tentacles, with the two slim three-fingered arm tentacles writhing from either side of a wide lipless mouth sat beneath that torse. Big, unwinking eyes behind horn-rimmed spectacles, flat nose, elephantine ears. Not thee, Wushkadan, he gasped. Tis only one Wushkadan, said the Martian. The Amazon sat down on her own bunk and laughed, a homeric shout of laughter ringing between the metal walls and shivering the furniture. Welcome, little Earthman, she cried. You are cute, I think I will like you. I'm Diane Colas of Catantuma. She grabbed his hand in a bone-cracking grip. One of the centaurians, said Ballantyne feebly. Yes, so you call it. She opened her trunk and began unpacking. Ballantyne watched her with appreciation and some curiosity. He'd only seen the Alpha Centaurian visitors on television before now. She looked human enough externally, aside from a somewhat different convolution of the ears. Internally there were plenty of peculiarities, among them a skeletal and tissue structure considerably harder and denser than that of Homo Salis. Alpha Centauri III, of Iran as its more advanced nation had decided to call it after learning from the terrestrial explorers that it was a planet, was Earth-like enough in a cool, embracing way, but it had half again the surface gravity. Sexual differentiation also varied a bit from the solar norm. The Centaurian men were somewhat smaller and weaker than the women. They stayed at home and did the housework, while their wives conducted the business. In the warlike culture of Catan Tumor and its neighbor states, that meant going out, cutting the other army into hamburger, and stealing everything which wasn't bolted down. This Diane Collas was something to write home about as far as looks went. Her size and the broadsword at her waist were intimidating, but her build was magnificent in a statuesque, tiger-lithe way. She looked young, her skin smooth and faintly golden, a heavy mass of shining bronze hair coiled about the haughtily lifted head. Her face was close to the ideal of an ancient Hellenic sculptor, clean straight lines, firm jaw, brilliant grey eyes under heavy brows. She wore a light cuirass over her tunic, sandals, a bat-winged helmet on her head. Uh, it's, uh, it's strange that put you in the same cabin with me, said Ballantyne hesitantly. Oh, you are safe enough, she grinned. He flushed, reflecting that the ladies from Centauri were in little danger from any solar man. Very likely it was the other way around. Then he recalled that their native titles translated into things like warrior, 
district ruler, chief, and so on. With their arrogant indifference to mere exploration and ethnology, the Jovians had probably assumed that Dayan Korlas was male, while he wasn't going to enlighten them. He looked up to Urushkidan, who was morosely stuffing a big bold pipe. I know of your work, of course, he said hesitantly. I am, was a nuclear engineer, so maybe I even have some appreciation of what it's about. The Martian preened. Doubtless your graft to bear well, he said generously, as one of any Etman could, which is, of course, saying bear little. But I may ask, sir, what are you doing here? Oh, I have inhibited from the Jobian Academy of Sciences to lecture. They are commendably interested and seem to realize my fundamental importance. I will be glad to get off Earth, to air pressure, to gravity, poofery. But a man, a Martian of your distinction, trifling third class. Oh, they sent me a first class ticket, of course, but I turned it in, bought a third class and banked a difference. He scowled darkly at Diane Carlos. Tough if I must be treated so well, he shrugged. The Martian shrugging is quite a sight. It is of no matter. We of Otu, Mars, as you insist on calling it, are so incomparably far advanced into philosophic virtues of serenity, generosity, and modesty that I can accept with equanimity. Oh, said Ballantyne to the Centaurian, and may I ask, why are you going to Jupiter, uh, Miss Corlass? You may call me Diane, she said sweetly, and I will call you Ray, sir. I wish only to see Jupiter, though I doubt it will be glamorous as Earth. Her eyes glowed. You live in a fable, the flying and traveling machines, auto-automatic kitchen, television, clocks and watches, exotic dress. Ah, it's worth ten years traveling just to see them. Ballantyne reflected on what he knew of Alpha Centauri. Even the fantastically fast new exploratory ships took ten years to cross the interstellar gulf to its wild planets, and there had only been three expeditions so far. The third had brought back a group of curious natives who were to report to their queen what the stranger's homeland was like. He imagined that the spacemen had had quite a time, with that score of turbulent barbarians crammed into a narrow hull, though of course they'd pass almost the whole voyage in suspended animation. The visitors had spent about a year now on Earth and Luna, staring, asking endless questions, wondering what their hosts did with themselves now that the UN had brought the nations together and ended war. There hadn't been much trouble. Occasionally one of them would get mad and break somebody's jaw, and then they'd be the one who was invited to speak at a women's club. He chuckled to himself. Are these Yorvian humans like you? asked Ian. Aha, uh-huh, he nodded. The moons were colonized from Earth about 125 years ago. They declared their independence about sixty years past, and nobody thought it was worth the trouble to fight about it. Or maybe we should have. Why that? Oh, well, the colonists were misfits originally, remnants of the old Eurasian militarisms. They did do heroic work in settling and developing the Jovian system, but they live under a dictatorship and make no bones about despising Earth and considering themselves the destined rulers of all the planets. Last year they grabbed the Saturnian colonies and Athenists of pretext, and Earth was too chicken-livered to do more than give them a reproachful look. Not that the UN has much of a navy these days compared to theirs. Diane shrugged and went on unpacking. She hung an extra sword on the wall, unshipped her armor and put it up, and slipped into a loose, fur-trimmed robe. Rushkidan slithered to the floor and opened his own trunk pulling out a score of fat books which he placed on the shelf over his bunk and expropriated the little table for his papers, pencils, and humidor. You know, uh, Dr. Arushkadan, 
said Ballantyne uneasily. I wish you weren't going to Jupiter. And why not? asked the Martian belligerently. Well, doesn't your reformulation of general relativity indicate a way to build a ship which can go faster than light? Among other things, yes. Ureshkadam blew a malodorous cloud of smoke. Well, I don't think the Jovians are interested in science for its own sake. I think they want to get you and your knowledge so they can build such ships themselves, which would be the last thing they need to take over the solar system. A Martian, said Ureshkadam condescendingly, is not concerned with the squabblings of the lower animals, nothing personal, of course. Deanne pulled an idol from her trunk and put it on her shelf. It was a small wooden image, gaudily painted and fiercely tusked, each of its six arms holding some weapon. One, Ballantyne noticed, was a carved, terrestrial tummy gun. Quiet, please, she said, raising one arm. I am about to pray to Orman the Terrible. Barbarian! guffawed Arishkadan. Deanne took a pillow and stuffed it in his mouth. Quiet, please, I said. She smiled gently and prostrated herself before the guard. After a while, she got up. Arishkadan was still speechless with rage. She turned to Ballantyne and asked, Do the ships here carry live animals? I would like to make a small sacrifice, too. 